welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Deanna Zhang, Energy Tech Investment Banking Director at Tudor Pickering Holt & Company, also known as TPH, for those who know the acronym better, and also a member of Forbes 30 Under 30. Deanna, thanks for coming on to the show. How are you doing this beautiful morning? Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing yes. great. You're doing good. Excellent. Are you enjoying this not extreme humid morning? Did you take advantage? Did you go for a walk or did you just get straight to work? I came straight to work. Okay. But I did take a walk yesterday and I was thankful that it wasn't pouring like yeah. it is in Louisiana. No kidding. No. And from anyone over at OGGN, our heart goes out to a lot of folks in Louisiana. I've got my in-laws. They have some bunch of families out in Louisiana. Fortunately, none of them got hit too, too bad. But yeah, it's, it's sad to see that. And so Deanna, do you know anyone out in Louisiana that you're close with that was affected? No, thankfully, nobody in my family is out there, but have a couple clients kind of in the region. So we've been checking in on them. Okay, good. And everybody said that they're, they're doing fine, you know, some damaged property, et cetera, but overall doing fine. Okay, good. Yeah. So we didn't get here. So I'm in Katy and we didn't get hit too bad. Just, you know, some rain and some wind, but I ended up, I was out, I think I was for a lunch meeting or something anyway. And my wife sent me a picture and said, does this backyard look familiar? And it was our trampoline that was all bent and like, but standing upright. I was like, well, no, that doesn't look like our backyard. So (laughs) apparently somehow our trampoline, like, high jumped over the fence onto our oh neighbor's yard. Yeah. Which, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but it was interesting that like the trampoline looked completely fine with, except for the netting on top, that was kind of bent and no windows broken. And it was sitting, like I said, just perfectly upright. The fence is wooden and it's not, it's just those typical suburb fences. Like they're not that sturdy. And there was not even a scratch or a, like anything torn off. Wow. Of that. So somehow it like catapulted itself over the fence and, so that was the extent of my issues. And so like, I'm super thankful because all we had to do is like lift it over the fence. And I think we did more damage lifting it back over the fence <laughs> than it actually had going the first time. But yeah, you know, it's crazy because in Canada, we don't experience stuff like this. This is where I'm from. So this is all somewhat new to me, even though I've been here for about a decade. But yeah, now I know if there's a hurricane coming to put something on the trampoline so it doesn't fly away. <laughs> so no yep. to anyone with a trampoline, be careful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've born and raised in Houston my entire life, so I should be Ah, used to this. Okay. But I've been through, I've been through several hurricanes and, you know, for the, you know, the first two decades I was with my parents and so they handled everything. Yeah. But I was here for Harvey, but luckily pretty much escaped most of the power loss 
Mm. I was actually living in downtown at the time. So okay. downtown didn't really get affected as much as some of the other areas. This past weekend, though, our apartment lost both power and water. Oh, no. And, you know, we had gone on a grocery run, but unfortunately, a lot of those groceries were perishable, which <laughs> that was a rookie mistake. But <laughs> but we kept the fridge door closed. And thankfully, we were one of the ones that CenterPoint got to a little bit earlier on. So so I think we're fine on the okay. food front. But I know yeah. a lot of other people weren't, weren't as fortunate. Yeah, no. And it's, it's a mad scramble when all this happens. It's like, you know, like, you know, like you said, you've lived here your whole life, but it's almost like people, once you get over one, it's kind of a breath of fresh air. And then all of a sudden you don't think about it. But I know some people have like thousands of dollars worth of like survival packs and in their houses and like always have like 10 gallons of water just ready, which I think is super smart, but we get so comfortable with just the convenience of everything that being at our fingertips at all times. And all of a sudden when Texas freezes over or there's a hurricane, everyone freaks out. So, but it sounds like you're kind of one of those two. It's like, oh no, now we need to react. Right. But Hey, that's okay. We'll all survive. So I always like to kick things off just to kind of get to know a little bit about yourself. And so I want to ask the following question. So describe the ideal Friday night and assuming you could do anything in the world and you had all the money to do it. Well, what would that look like for you? Ooh, good question. <laughs> Let's see. All the money in the world. And you could go in like you Friday could, night. Yeah. And you could literally take a jet that like teleported you to Italy if you wanted to. Just what, whatever that looks like, what would it be? Hmm. I feel like I always have a hard time just relaxing, just trying to just let go of everything and just sit around somewhere and not do anything. So I feel like if I were given that opportunity, I would probably be trying to fit as many things as I can that Friday night, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to, you know, take, you know, if I had access to a jet of some sorts flying to to Italy and then to France and then, you know, to London, maybe like the, I would set up the evening. So it's like, you know, Italy for an afternoon coffee and then France for a nice dinner and then London for a night out and then flying back home. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like every time I've planned a vacation, it's always the itinerary is pretty full because I, I always like want to be doing all these different different things and fitting all of it in the schedule. I don't know if that's that's necessarily like if I'm optimizing for my peak enjoyment or right. if I'm optimizing for what, you know, what my expectation of what I should be doing is. Yeah. But I feel like if I was given that opportunity, that's kind of how how it play out. I love it. No. And, you know, and that's exactly right. And, and it's funny because it's almost it's the same type of question you say, oh, if you won the lottery, what would you do? And you kind of have to think about it. But I think it's interesting. I think it brings up a good point. And you bring up a good point is like you mentioned, it, I have a hard time disconnecting. And then when I do have the opportunity, or if I had the opportunity, like I would just cram all this stuff in there. And so I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, you have a hard time you know, disconnecting and relaxing. So why do you suspect that is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for so many of us, it's like for our jobs and what we do kind of day to day as a routine, you kind of have to turn on and you have to be on for so long and you sort of get used to that. And then when it comes time for you to completely switch around your schedule, 
you know, for the weekend or for vacation, all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. We're wasting so much time, like not doing X, Y, Z, you know, like there's, I think it takes a, a lot of time to transition to that mentality. I think maybe like, I, I think I would have a tough time with retirement. I think a lot of people do because of that reason, because it's like so hard to switch off once you're on. And it's like, you you know, once you're running like, you know, 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, it's like hard to like, just slow down to like a nice, even walking pace. You know, it's right. kind of like that, that kind of thing. So it's, yes, yeah, so it's been an ongoing issue for me. I think I've been consciously trying whenever I try to take a break to just like take the schedule that I've laid out and then just cut it in half and like give every activity like twice as much time and see how that plays. And I find that like that helps a lot when you're, you're not giving yourself too much to do, but at the same time, keeping like a little bit of a schedule so that you, you know, you don't feel like too much, like, you know, what's going to happen or, you know, what are we going to do or like a little bit lost. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like a looser schedule, I think helps a lot. Good for you. And so when you're able to do that and actually accomplish disconnecting, do you find that you feel recharged? Do you kind of feel like you're clearer, more energy? I mean, because a lot of people like, because I think it's sustainable, you know, when we're in our 20s and 30s, but as we grow older, the battery slowly starts to not be able to recharge as fast. And, And you bring up a great point about retirement. And when I saw my father retire, I swear within a week, he aged about a decade, like mentally and everything. Cause he was so on it, on it, on it. And like I said, like woke up with purpose, went to bed with purpose. Cause he knew, okay, I got to get up. I got to do this. I got to do that. And then all of a sudden when like he finally had the time and knew that he could decompress, it's like, he didn't know what to do. It's like, you know, when you take a picture and I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> it's like, you know, he, he had the issue of, I don't know what to do with my life. And even though he had a retirement plan, it was like, well, I, I can I can only sit on a beach in Mexico for so many days without like going stir crazy, especially because he always, people always depended on him for, you know, accomplishing tasks. And again, when you do it for from the time, I mean, he dropped out of elementary school pretty much. And then, you know, it was just an entrepreneur his whole life. It was, yeah, it was very challenging. So anyway, I think it really brings out the point. It's like, you, you do need the time. And, and although it's sometimes it's tough to disconnect, it's super important because yeah, you definitely don't want to burn the candle at both ends. And by the time you're 45, you just mush because you can't function anymore because you've done it for so long. And then like you said, like technology, that's the thing is like to say the baby boomers, like when they went home from work, they were at home and they didn't have the cell phone ring and they didn't, they weren't seeing all these alerts come up. And so it's only been recent that we've been able to be connected like this. And so like the folks, like, you know, I would imagine you're probably similar age to me, you know, whether it's under 30 or, you know, around your thirties, my entire career has been on in like evenings, weekends, you know, it doesn't matter. The internet still turns on or just doesn't turn off. So anyway, it's just, it's an interesting concept. And that this is definitely not like the whole primary topic of the day, but it's just, it's always, I think it's interesting to bring up and it helps people at least think about it. Anyway, speaking of 30 under 30, cause I, I didn't see that on your LinkedIn. I think it's an awesome accomplishment and I'm curious, how did that come about and, and describe what it was like to be on that list? Cause that's something that not very many people get to experience. Yeah. And I'm incredibly fortunate that I think I was, it's sort of being 
a little bit like being in the right place at the right time, as in like, you know, there's a certain, you know, level of accomplishment that you have to have to get on the list. But truthfully, it's a lot about who you know. And I was really fortunate that a client of ours kind of, I met them and they really went out on a limb and and nominated me for this list. And they had good relationships with the Forbes people. So I think it's more about that, I think, than anything else. I think they're doing a good job, though, of, of sort of canvassing the industry, making good connections with people that would take note of those who are like movers, you know, in the industry. But in the end, it's like all about network. Like this whole yeah. job, my whole job is all about network. So I've been very fortunate to be in a position to access that network and be given those opportunities. I guess like in terms of like what I did to kind of, you know, actually achieve that level of accomplishment to get on the list, you know, that you'll see on the list, it's like a lot of CEOs, it's a lot of founders. It's like people who have built things, right? And as for me, it's a little bit different because I kind of grew up in at TPH and and kind of I'm not the CEO of TPH. I'm not a founder of TPH. But I think what's interesting about about my journey is that I've been able to see TPH kind of go through a little bit of a transition and focus a little bit more on newer areas like technology, like energy transition, and kind of be a little bit in kind of the crux of all of that movement. So back in 2017, 2018, the firm was just starting to take note that there was this whole conversation around digitalization in the oil field that was emerging. And so Maynard, our CEO, hired our first hire in this group, John Gibson, who was chairman at the time, now a a senior advisor for our group, but hired him to kind of lead the efforts on the banking side. And then at the same time, I was actually in the research division at TPH, writing infrastructure equity research. And they wanted someone on the research side to kind of parallel the efforts they were making on the banking side. Okay. And I think the nice thing about TPH, the nice thing about being in sort of a leaner organization is that you're kind of, you know, if there's there's an opportunity, there's like, you know, 11 people in the room that they can, they can go to for that opportunity. Yeah. So I raised my hand, I got it, and I just started writing about the space. And there wasn't a ton of research or literature at the time, especially kind of focused more on the efforts of of the startups and the one, the people that were really doing, you know, kind of grassroots type of things versus like, you know, there's, there were equity research reports on what Schlumberger was doing, what Halliburton was doing and, you know, kind of the big guys that were covered by sort of the services analysts in the sector. But as for coverage of private companies and coverage of, of startups that really didn't exist at the time. And so me coming in and like, just like, scrambling to, you know, cold reach out. I I cold reach out to so many people just to like get that initial conversation, just to get those primary sources to be able to write interesting things, write, write things that nobody else was writing about. And so I did that for seven or eight months. And I was like, I love this. This is exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah. And so decided at that point that I wanted to be doing this full time. And so transitioned 
over back to the investment banking side, which I'd actually started out my career in. Okay. So it was like a little bit like coming back home, if you will, but yeah. focused 100% on energy tech. And then kind of working with John and Gary to like build this out. And I, you know, I was in charge of execution and eventually that naturally led to origination. And, and so really was at the helm of kind of this movement that, or this new group that the TPH was building around this area. And then over the last 12 to 18 months, that's also accelerated because of the conversation around climate change or conversation around energy transition. That's accelerated for a lot of our traditional clients now, as well as in the startup community. So just tons of activity, tons of flow, and kind of being in the middle of all that. I think I was I was fortunate to get a lot of exposure and opportunity. And that's, I think, ultimately what led me to kind of cross that threshold for Forbes. Wow. No, that's such a neat story. And there's a few things that you mentioned in there that I want to discuss as we move along. But before we keep going, I do want to highlight, speaking of technology, some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, which is TechNip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. TechNip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. Also for the listeners, we're now doing our monthly happy hours here in Houston. Check out OGGN.com for details on all our events. And also please make sure to look at all the other OGGN podcasts if you have time. We have a ton of new podcasts that cover everything from new technology, ESG to leadership and anything in between. Visit OGGN.com as well for more details. So Deanna, you mentioned networking. And within, so I'm in sales and business development and my form of networking may look a little different than your form of networking, but how do you maximize your, your time in order to network? I would imagine on the, on the investment banking side, and again, I'm totally just speculating, but it's a lot of just, fo- you know, focusing on your clients and obviously doing research, but what does networking mean to you? And, and how do you go about doing that to keep, to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on? Yeah, I think it's nice as an advisor, you're kind of in the middle of a lot of different interactions. So you kind of, you know, have that sort of natural sales funnel where if you're working for one side, you get access to the other side and that develops a relationship there. But I think for us, you know, we're in the advice business. We need to be good advisors. So networking a lot of times, it's not very meaningful unless you have to, you have something to give to the other side. Okay. So if you're talking to a potential client, like giving advice up front, like trying to add value to them immediately is kind of the most powerful form of, of networking I find. And that's why I think like a lot of the marketing events we do and a lot of the outreach and the, the outward interaction we have with the rest of the industry is all about, you know, demonstrating thought leadership and trying to kind of give something to the broader community, the broader industry before we get any business from anybody. It's like, if you're selling a product, right? Like in order to sell the product, like you either, you know, give them a taste for what the product is. You sell them on the features of the product. You tell them about the product. For us, showing is is stronger than telling. So like being able to, to kind of show that we have that thought leadership, that we're, we're the hired, we can be the hired brains for you, essentially, is kind of our form of networking. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. 
And so I want to bring it back a little bit. So growing up, so you're from Houston, growing up, were you always interested in finance in the investment banking world? Or how did you, you know, finally decide, okay, this is the career path I'd like to take? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I wasn't interested in finance as a kid. You know, both my parents were in the IT world, both were software engineers, and so had never been exposed to to finance or the business world in general. Growing up, I actually really liked science. I was a math and science person. And so I thought this is going to be very cliche, but I thought I was going to be a doctor growing up. Okay. And I wanted to study biology or chemistry and work in the lab and really just do something related to science. And that was my mindset, I think, up until kind of maybe freshman year of college. Then I sort of... I had shadowed some doctors up until then, had kind of a taste for what working in clinic was like. But then I think it was like Thanksgiving of freshman year. I actually went in and shadowed someone in the ER and then shadowed a couple more doctors after that. And I I began to notice that, you know, there's you think a lot of times about these professions as like being purely, you know, purely for the greater good and everybody kind of working towards that end goal. But I started to notice a lot of just like politics that was involved in clinic. And that kind of led me to be a little bit disenchanted with kind of the the path there. And, you know, I was enjoying my science classes at the time, so I continued to take those. But I was kind of rethinking, that just led me to rethink what I wanted to do. That's not to say that the healthcare professions or being a doctor is like, you know, it's it's all politics or anything. I'm not bashing that life choice. My sister is in med school right now, actually. Okay. But for me, I was like, that kind of led me to take a step back. And in taking a step back, I started to look around at what opportunities were around me. I found this organization that was a finance organization on campus and joined them. And, you know, I think it was initially from the mindset of like I need to know how to manage my personal portfolio in the future. And, you know, I no exposure to finance. I need to figure out what, you know, how do you value a stock and how do you think about that? And just all of that kind of, this is like a very natural inroad into like the world of finance, right? It's like just figuring out like what you can do to your personal portfolio and now or in the future and how do you handle your personal finances? So I joined that organization. It was it's called Smart Women Securities. It was all women, all women who were interested in finance, who wanted to learn about finance. And it was finance from all perspectives, like as a career, but then also personally. And it was meant to just be kind of a coalition or support group for women that were just interested in this field. And then through that organization, I met a bunch of people who had internships in investment banking and were vying for internships in investment banking, you know, kind of like on that path. And I felt like they were some of the smartest people I had ever met. And (laughs) I really looked up to a lot of those women. And I think having connections to them and talking to them, I really began to fall into that path as well. And like, you know, reading the same things that they read and talking about the same things that they talked about. And it kind of goes back to our conversation about networking. It's all about network, right? And so that's how I got into finance. And I eventually did an internship 
my junior summer with Barclays in New York. And then that led to a full time with TPH right after school. Wow. So it sounds like you found your passion and thankfully early on in your college career, because <laughs> it would, uh, you know, because oftentimes people graduate college and then they're like, well, maybe not, now I want to go back because now I truly know what I want to do. And, and then, you know, obviously you've crushed it since then. So that's super fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about, so I saw on LinkedIn as well that you do speaking and I didn't realize, I mean, you've got a rap sheet about, I have to scroll at least three times to get to the bottom of the list on how many speaking events you've done. But I just want to mention a few as of recently, you did the future of carbon utilization. I think that was in July, searching for new infrastructure. You were a moderator for that, but you also did some keynote speaking on machine learning in oil and gas, as well as digitalization in oil and gas for Canada. So I'm curious, out of all the speaking events you've done, which one has really stuck out and, and which one do you feel passionate about that you'd like to share? Of course, it'd be great to run through all of them, but was there one that stood out or is there a topic that really stands out that you'd like to perhaps you know summarize and sort of give your observation on some things that you're seeing? And it could be any one of those really, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to just kind of whatever one that you think would be great. Yeah. All of the topics are, I would say, really interesting. And I think the ones that kind of capture like the overall trend of where this industry is going or take into account all the different stakeholders. I think they're the most interesting to me because I, I learned so much from being on the panel or for being moderator for those discussions. I think in particular, like the ones that kind of incorporate ESG or incorporate energy transition and then kind of link that back to, you know, what was the latest and greatest you know, movement in the energy industry two or three years ago, which was, I think, digitalization and kind of this movement towards optimization and efficiency in the industry. I think linking kind of what's happened recently to what emerged out of that is like a really, really interesting topic because I think both has to happen, right? We need to be cleaner and we need to have more transparency we need to be more mindful and more more actionable around ESG, but we also need to make sure we're making money for the industry and we need to make sure that we keep our employees employed and we need to make sure that we're doing things process-wise as efficiently as possible. And it's interesting because both of those trends take capital to deploy, both in like encouraging startups that are working in the space to continue to grow and funding their growth. And then also like internally within kind of the larger incumbents, these larger organizations, not only your, your integrated, but your independents, your private equity backed EMPs, your midstream companies, just within these like incumbent organizations, funding efforts, encouraging people to use their time and resources to make things better in those two directions. But I think the problem is that they, the capital availability is so slim in this industry right now that yeah. it's oftentimes one or the other, right? And then these days it's like ESG that's become more of a priority and it doesn't have to be you know, necessarily competing. I think if you're aiming for transparency, oftentimes you need to put in some sort of digital system or software system that can help on the efficiency front too. So it, they can be very synergistic. 
but there are cases in which you kind of have to choose one or the other that they're they're like fighting for the same same capital. And I see this kind of most often in startups and kind of the companies I work with around VC ecosystem and the startup ecosystem. You know, if you can start out as a company that's aiming to just increase well productivity or or decrease costs on the oil field. And we saw a lot of those emerge in kind of the 2018, 2017 time period. But then these days, like that's almost secondary. Like you kind of have to be selling your contribution to the footprint story or the mission story a lot stronger than what you can do to help with well well productivity, which is an in really interesting transition to talk about because it's like, is that necessarily sustainable? Is that necessarily, you know, what's best for the industry? Because I think we still have to encourage both sides, but I think it's leaning almost too much to, you know, having every company have to fulfill that ESG component and focus on that ESG component. So I think it's, it's a symptom of the fact that like, if you mention that your target market is is oil and gas, and oftentimes in the sphere outside of Houston, mentioning that you are working for a company that's looking to help oil and gas companies make more oil and gas. Yeah. That's almost like taboo, like outside of like the energy circle. But I think it's something that that mindset is not sustainable and will have to change. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how that sphere merges with with the one that's emerged around ESG and, and energy transition. Right. So how do you suspect that will change? And do you think that, because a lot of what we do in oil and gas, and I, I would imagine every other industry is driven by the investment community and you know, market demands. Right now, the investment community, from just my observation and reading and things that I read is like, they're the ones driving this. A lot of, you know, you have folks like BlackRock and the, a lot of these other larger institutions saying, you know, we're only going to invest in companies that, you know, show us, you know, their initiatives. And a lot of companies are coming out with, you know, target plans. I think, was it Pioneer just came out that they're going to be net zero by a certain time. And so a lot of these companies are certainly, you know, they sound good and they're talking the talk, but at the end of the day, the principles of business are creating value for shareholders. And if the shareholders want it and they see there's value in it, then obviously it sounds like that would be the initiative, but are there going to be folks that, on the investment community that lean back towards like, Hey, like the cost of doing business now is more because you're being forced to add these components. Cause it, there, there's a cost of doing business. And then if you're adding this ESG component, there's, you know, it requires people, time, research, other technologies. Do you think it'll swing back the other way at all? Or do you think this is like a wave that's just going to continue to grow as we move along, you know, the energy transition as we're calling it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about, you know, it's all about, I think, public perception. And I think that's going to stick around for a while because public perception, I think, determines a lot of what kind of the big capital guys, how they think about where they should put their capital, like the big pension plan funds or the retirement funds or the big family offices. Those are the ones that are moving the needle in terms of putting capital to work in various private equity funds or hedge funds or venture capital funds that are specifically targeting different mandates. And 
I think as long as the public perception is there that, you know, that oil and gas has to incur that cost of business in order to move forward, I think that's the mindset that the LPs will go in with that will pressure the PE firms and the hedge funds and whoever is actually funding all of these companies to go in with that similar mindset. And, and so it's kind of like, it's kind of something that I think will continue to proliferate and continue to, to stem from that public perception. And that's not going away. Interesting. No, that makes a total sense to me. How much of what people are doing are a function of the low cost of capital? And if the cost of capital does increase above favorable amounts, how would that change the landscape, you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I think because of the low cost of capital, we've seen kind of different vehicles emerge that wouldn't have normally emerged in this kind of market, like the, you know, the SPACs is kind of the the big example, right? Like that's driven so, so much of the activity in this space, so much of the conversation around energy transition, because it's provided an avenue for these earlier stage companies, mostly in EVs, mobility, and in energy storage to to find a, a way to kind of get bigger earlier and exit almost earlier. Like it's not, it's not a perfect exit, but does provide an avenue for some investors to take some capital off the table. We're seeing that kind of play out a little bit negatively these days. So right, so SPAC, the SPAC market is softening. It has softened quite a bit. But the emergence of that is, I think, that is like the story of, of 2020 and 2021, I think, yeah. for the financial world is like that has driven these companies to get larger, to become more of the conversation for both public investors and private investors. And then also it has driven kind of knock-on activity or, or follow-on activity from kind of VC community looking at companies that may be targets in the future that may have this avenue and and having having those investors kind of maybe shortening their time to IPO or time to SPAC because of how the public markets are performing. And so that's driven a lot of the VC activity into those companies that they felt were, you know, kind of fall in that bucket. And that acceleration, it's not a zero-sum game for sure, but at the same time, you know, a lot of that that capital that's going into these EV mobility oriented, storage oriented companies might have gone elsewhere had not all of this happened, right? So I think that, yeah, for sure, a lot of things have happened because of the low cost of capital that that have led to what the status is right now for the space. And then, you know, as that increases, you know, there's going to be more, I think, conservatism and Generally speaking, we'll, we'll see a pullback in capital for sure. And people will be a little bit more discerning. It's kind of what happened to a lot of the oil and gas focused funds and how they have handled kind of the pullback in capital from their LPs. They've had to be a lot more discerning around the opportunities that they do get into within oil and gas and then have to be, you know, not, they have to be pretty like careful about entering into new spaces because you always want your first investment to be a winner, right? Or your (laughs) first few investments have to be winners in order for you to be able to raise your next fund around that mandate. So they've been very conservative on all fronts, not only in oil and gas and then 
but also in, in these other areas that they're branching off into. No, that makes sense. Is there anything specifically in say tech that really interests you that you see taking off that maybe you know present more opportunity in the future, like with regards to a certain sector or segment within the industry? Yeah, you know, I think the way I see it is like hard science does all the work, like hard tech, being able to put capital to work around infrastructure, I think is what ultimately moves the needle for the energy industry. So anything around geothermal or hydrogen or CCUS or storage or deployment of renewable energy, I think that's ultimately what decides the numbers. But the kind of the interesting area that I want to see develop more and mature more is kind of who measures those numbers yeah, and how those numbers actually get communicated out to different stakeholders and companies and maybe even the general public. So I think that's a whole ecosystem that's developing around not only just the monitoring of emissions, measuring of emissions, measuring a footprint, generally speaking, but then also like the like communication side. So like, how do you report that to the proper authorities? How do you report that on your, in your sustainability reports? How do you communicate all of that to either third-party verification bodies or to just the general public? Do you publish it on your website? You know, like there's this whole, this is like how I think the energy industry will eventually trend is like, we have to become more connected with consumer somehow. We have to be a lot better about educating the consumer around what choices they're making in energy. Mm. And that's something we've always taken a step back on, right? We've always been like, well, we just make the product. We don't handle the consumption. That's somebody else's problem. But right. it has become our problem because because the world sees it as our problem. Right. <laughs> so we have to kind of, I think, have an ability to communicate with the consumer. And the consumer wants to be communicated with. Like, I think, like, you know, I'm almost behind the curve in this aspect, but I pay attention, a lot of attention to my energy use, I pay a lot of attention to the footprint of the consumer choices I'm making. And, you know, there's always like a balance of like, you know, do I buy the cheaper item that may be less sustainable or do I I pay for the green premium? And that's always going to be there. But I think you, you see more and more consumers actually wanting to know, like, where's this product coming from? How did you make it? And I will pay the green premium if I can verify all of that information meets meeting my standards. So anyway, so I think that's like a really interesting part of the space. It's like, how do you take all this data that we're gathering and the improvements we're making and we actually communicate that to everybody outside of energy industry? Yeah, no. So that actually is a fascinating topic and area. It's one that I've, I've shared conversations with amongst my network. And you see now even the utility side of things. I mean, in parts of the country, it used to be regulated and they looked at the consumers as price takers. And now they're actually putting emphasis on like giving information to consumers, educating consumers, and really increasing that customer experience to make sure that to help guide them, make good decisions based off, you know, their initiatives or their values or whatever the case may be. But I think it's important too, like you said, well, and gas money is like, hey, we just produce it and the demand is set by the consumers, which we have no control over. But if there's demand, we'll supply. And I think it's interesting, yeah, is like measuring and then also educating their buyers 
and having ultimately the consumers, which is us, you know, burning natural gas, driving cars, whatever the case is, is like having a better idea of like the entire process in looking at being able to sort of see just more information to help us make better decisions along the entire supply chain, I think is extremely important. And then how do you standardize that? You know what I mean? It's like accounting, I think is still trying to figure out a way to like, (laughs) you know, the whole accounting world. It's like, we somehow come up with these standards and how we report to the SEC and everything else, but it's going to be a whole world of, of how do you report under the same type of, you know, restricted guidelines. It's like, okay, here's the standards you have to follow. I think that's still a very gray area. It sounds like that's kind of what you're saying is like figuring out a way to all, you know, standardize and figure up systems and regulatory bodies that say, yes, like you are meeting the mark. (laughs) You are doing this correctly because I think now people, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's a form of capitalism is like, how can we get creative to maximize our abilities to make profits and, you know, without, you know, necessarily bad intent, but it's like, we got to figure this out. Like we got to do the best we can under the conditions and the conditions are getting tough, tougher and tougher. So yeah, that part of it is, is fascinating. Do you see anyone as leaders in that space? Or, I mean, you don't necessarily have to say names, but do you feel like there's progress being made in that, that side of things? I do. Yeah. I think there's quite a large amount of activity in the startup space centered around, you know, measuring the footprint emissions detection, leak detection, and then accounting software that kind of links links all of that together. I think there's been progress on the standards front. I'm a little bit cynical about the standards only because I think there's going to be an evolution of what we consider, I guess, what we consider responsible and what we consider kind of truly ESG. And right now it's almost purely on the emissions front but there's like a hundred other dimensions of ESG that you can get, get into that we haven't even touched yet. So I think the standards will continue to evolve. We're not going to get any, you know, we're not going to get to kind of a true, here's what good business practice looks like on the ESG front anytime soon. That's my opinion. But I think as we kind of evolve, that's why it's so important as a company to kind of be on top of this because it's all relative. Like if everybody's not meeting the standards, if you, you know, 80% meet the standards and everybody else is 50% meeting the standards, then you're a leader, even though nobody's meeting the standards, right? And then the reverse is, the opposite is also true, which is like, if SASB or somebody has set a standard and everybody has met the standards, but as a company, you've gone above and beyond those standards, you're at 110% and everybody else is at 100%, then you're going to be a leader. And the cost of capital, like, will adjust on a relative basis to those that are our leaders. So it's almost, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, the standards help kind of guide the entire industry, but in terms of like meeting the standards or setting the standards, it almost doesn't matter as long as you're, you're ahead of your peers. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I'm very eager to see how this all evolves, you know, as time goes on and, and then activity just continues to pick up energy demand continues to increase globally. It'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out, but in the interest of time, which I certainly want to respect your time, I just have one final question, kind of taking business side out of it. Just a closing question is for you, is you mentioned being very connected all the time and it's hard for you to disconnect or just relax, but do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success or your ability to recharge? Does anything come to mind? 
it's definitely a work in progress for me. So okay. I can't say that I, I've found the answer quite yet. But I think generally speaking, if I get a lot of stuff done towards the beginning of the day, I feel a lot better. I feel like I can relax a lot more and can actually carve out time to go and, you know, do a workout class or just like make dinner or something. Like I can actually carve out that time and be comfortable with that later on. So, so I think, you know, still working on it, but (laughs) trying to wake up early and then try to get as much stuff done as possible in kind of the first like six hours of the day okay. so that I can, I can actually, you know, be comfortable with relaxing later on. Interesting. So a lot of people have a specific morning routine. So are you a get up, go to work, or do you at least take two minutes to drink a coffee or tea or like (laughs) anything like that? Or do you just like get up, brush your teeth and gone? Yeah. Well, sometimes when I feel like I have a lot to do, I will literally just get up and then get on my computer and then I'll brush brush my teeth later. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you're, you are committed. I like that. TBH has a winner on their hands. I promise. (laughs) No, that, Hey, look, whatever works, it's certainly no right or wrong answer. It's just always interesting to hear people's, you know, their daily or their routines, but Deanna, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there any closing last words or, or anything you'd like to mention to the audience before we close out? No, I mean, I think this is this has been awesome, Justin. And and I think more of this needs to happen. As an industry, we need to be talking more. We need to be more connected. And I think a lot of this outreach and the work that you do does a lot to move that forward. So I appreciate that and I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Absolutely, Deanna. And for the audience out there, I just want to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming OGGN events. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one, but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years. So make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGDN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. Great. Thank you. And Deanna, if anyone's interested, I know you put out, I think it's, you said you write, but if people are more interested in the space or any talks that we've discussed today, what's the best resource for that? Is it your website, perhaps LinkedIn? What's the best? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also email me. I'll put it out there, dzang2 at tphco.com. Oh, great. And then tphco.com is our website and you can find a lot of the stuff we've done recently on there. Excellent. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes. That way it's easy for everyone to access. And again, thank you so much for your time and for the audience out there. Always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.